Hello, 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 and welcome back to yet another episode of Let's Talk About the Facts. I am your host, Elizabeth Fury, and with me again today is my glorious sister-in-law, Jennifer. Hello. I'm so glad that you're Elizabeth Fury. (laughs) I'm so glad that you're Jennifer Fury. That's right. (laughs) And that we're related. Welcome back to the podcast. We were so glad to have you the first Thank you. It's been a minute. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I felt like this particular subject would be right up your alley as you are a mom and also related to my brother. Mm -hmm. And also, it's about incredibly nosy neighbors. Okay. I have a very nosy neighbor. And it very much just really... As Sophia from the Golden Girls would say, hawks me off. (laughs) Drives me absolutely batty. I feel like you also may know what this feels like. So we're going to talk about that today. Sure. However, this one um, takes nosiest to a level in which there is no return. So imagine, if you will, having the world's most possible, like, worst neighbor And that's where our story will start. Probably the worst neighbor possible. You won't believe where. Of course you will. It's Ohio. (laughs) I thought you were going to say Florida because you Florida. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to live in Florida. But, like, okay, but the humidity in Florida, I come from the land of dry heat. And everyone's like, oh, that's not a big difference, right? No, it's a huge difference. I would rather have 100 degrees in Los Angeles then 90 degree, wait, no, what was it, 88 yesterday with humidity? Horrific. I was ready to die. <laughs> um, it's good for your skin. It's, um, my skin cleared up when I moved to LA. Oh, well. <laughs> I don't know, know if that's because I got older or, if, you know. Yeah. My skincare got better. Who knows? But uh, we're actually going to Circleville in 1976. What a name. Circleville? Circleville. Hmm, I could have come up with that. A town of circles. How does this relate to nosy neighbors? Well, Circleville is a city, and it's the county seat of Pickaway County, Ohio, 25 miles south of Columbus. I know people have heard of Columbus, Ohio, especially if they've heard of LeBron James. I believe that LeBron James is Ohio and is what makes Ohio important. Everything I know about Ohio is based off of Glee. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we're at this point where, like, Glee was relevant when I was in high school, and now we're so far away from that. I was late to the party. I started watching it while I was super pregnant with Audrey, and then... Oh, my God. So, I mean, 2011 is when I started watching the whole thing. It's still 11 years ago. And I got super sucked into it. It's 11 years ago. That's weird. Not 10. 11 years ago. <laughs> Earlier today, she told her not over she was 10. I, I don't know. I don't really know why. But to be honest with you, um, I can't remember anyone's age because I have too many nieces and nephews. No, I don't. And it's Well, technically you have nine. I do. And... Don't ask me how old anyone is. I'm going to say nine, like my brother did for all of my life. He, anytime there was a birthday, he's like, what are you turning, nine? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he only had one little sibling. <laughs> yeah, no. But, okay, back to Circleville. Population, 
at the time of the 2010 census, 13,314. That's less than Mama. It is. The city is best known today as the host of the Circleville Pumpkin Show, <laughs> which is its annual festival since 1903. I want to go. I love pumpkins. Yeah. So there have been two additional incidents in Circleville, aside from the story, and I want to I want to take a moment for them. They're wild. April 1967. Bingman's Drugstore and multiple nearby buildings in downtown Circleville were destroyed when Lee Holbrook, the husband of a drugstore employee, brought a wooden box containing bundled dynamite and detonated it during an apparent struggle with the store staff. So Holbrook and the four store employees died from the blast and following fire. Nearly 30 other people were injured. Holbrook's wife was not in the store and not among the injured. That's weird. Did he die? Yeah. And four employees. He just brought a box of dynamite. Well, he sounds unstable. And dead. Yes. But that happened in Circleville. Okay. Next is in October of 1999, which feels like yesterday, really. Yeah. And uh, Circleville was hit by an F3 tornado. And for all of those who did not grow up in Tornado Alley, like this kid did, like you did, the F3 situation stands for Fujita, for the the Fujita scale. It was created by Ted Fujita, a Japanese-American meteorologist, who created a scale of tornado severity with the numbers of 0 to 6, based on the degree of observed damage. So it's not only largeness or, quote, badness, but damage. So, like, a tiny tornado in L.A. could be an F5. Huge tornado in the Mojave could be an F1. See what I'm saying? I got you. I didn't know that Ohio had tornadoes. I didn't either, but guess what? Okay. Here we are. We do now use the EF system, which started in 2007. More accurately matches the wind speeds for the severity of damage caused by the tornado. I don't really care about looking that up right now because that is not relevant to what we're talking about. Okay. Especially since that was 1999. All right. So those are two instances in Circleville that made the Wikipedia page. <laughs> Be proud. I know, right? You know me. Have to prep you for all the Winkus Link situations. But we're here for the Circleville Letter Writer. The OG Unsolved Mysteries episode called it The Poisoned Pen. Mm. But it didn't really get into why it was called that. But you know, let's talk about the facts. We're going to talk about it. So it's 1976. Let's talk about what's happened in 1976. Concord joins the plane business and cuts the flight time for transatlantic by three and a half hours. And then it would later die, not taking United with them. I miss them. They were referenced in the Lindsay Lohan parent trap. And honestly, <laughs> I had no idea what they were talking about at the time. And now I'm like, hmm, that'd be so nice. Microsoft debuted the year before, but Steve Jobs busted out that turtleneck with Steve Wozniak to produce Macintosh. And as we know, the colorful Apple should have invested, right? I was negative 15 or something, right? So, like, you know, it's my fault I didn't do that. The useless $2 bill was issued. It is not useless. It is useless. That's what the tooth fairy brings my children. Oh, my gosh. The almost useless $2 bill was issued. It still spends. It spends. But, man, on what? 
whatever you want to spend. You didn't even crack out a five for them? I got got a lot of two dollar bills. Oh, stop it. Okay, never mind. Just don't tell my kids. I don't know. Shocking. I've never heard this before in my life. (laughs) This uh, first space shuttle prototype was unveiled the Enterprise, costing $10 billion. It never made it to space. The cast of Star Trek was there for the unveiling, though. The the U.S. celebrates its bicentennial, but it's only when the Declaration was signed, the Constitution was written during the Philadelphia Convention, which we now call it the Constitutional Convention, which did its dirty from May 25th to September 17th, 1787. It was signed on September 17th, 1787, so wouldn't that be the bicentennial? Mm. Or am I just like a stickler for accurate? So South Africa had a really sad moment to recognize. Um, There's an uprising that was a series of demonstrations and protests led by black school children in South Africa that began in the morning of the 16th of June in 1976. The students from schools began to protest in response to the introduction of Afrikaans as the medium of instruction in local schools, it is estimated that 20,000 students took part in the protest. They were met with fierce police brutality, and many were murdered with guns. The number of people killed in the uprising is usually given as 176, but estimates of up to 700 have been made. It is in remembrance of these past events. June 16th is now a public holiday in South Africa named Youth Day. So the 70s, they were rough. We're going to narrow our focus deep into Ohio in that tiny city or circle, if you will, of Circleville. 1976 was very different for the small town in Ohio as the residents began receiving strange letters. These letters were threatening, detailed, personal information, and even, even sexually explicit. And if any of you know what it's like to be in a small town, you already know that knickers are in knots because everyone knows every one. And so the fact that there was no one that stood out as the initial culprit was terrifying to Circle Billions. Circle Billions. Some facts to know about Circleville, now that you know what we're dealing with. Is this the basic Debbie? Or are there interesting characters? Well, according to my research, Circleville is over 95% white, 74% married, and those married couples own a home. And I'm like, excuse me, how? And most people in town have a high school to blow up. Quite, quiet, boring. I probably would have died there, at least emotionally. <laughs> so Mary Gillespie, a bus driver for the local school, which I did not realize was such a lucrative job back in the 70s, received a letter from the Circleville writer. Allow me to read the document in question. Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. Whoa. So Mary Gillespie was accused of a supposedly non-existent affair with the superintendent of schools. It was postmarked Columbus, Ohio, but had no return address. Within eight days, Mary received a similar letter. A third letter arrived, saying, Gillespie, you've had two weeks and done nothing. 
admit the truth, and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBs, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. She kept the letters to herself until her husband, Ron, received one as well. So obviously, Mary and the superintendent, Gordon Massey, denied the alleged affair. And who wouldn't in the face of these charges? But also, why does the letter writer care? Did anyone stop to think that? Like, of course, others were receiving letters as well, but pausing to consider what was the motive here? Did anyone? Like, I don't really think so. So Ron Gillespie's letter read as follows. We must inform you that your wife is having an affair with Mr. Massey. She has chased him until he caught her. Eliminate them both before they eliminate you. Remember, we know where you work and your red and white truck. No one can help you. Think of your children and their future. Call the school board and report the truth after you finish your investigation. Notify the school board immediately. Again, your life is in danger. Wow. Like, what would you think? That would disturb me. Like, if you were Mary in this situation? I, I think I would feel crazy because it made it would make no sense. And I would not like the fact that someone knows where I live, knows that I have kids, saying they know what my husband's truck looks like. I would not be able to sleep. Right? Probably would go live somewhere else. But they're also accusing you of having an affair with someone. Right. Yeah, that Writing sucks. to that person. Yeah. Writing to your husband. And this is pre-cell phone. Yeah. I, that would not be cool. I mean, like, I would hate that. But I would I would like to think that the people like, you know, Robert or anybody that knows me well wouldn't believe that that was true. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I would stress about that as much. Yeah. That's as just knowing that I'm being watched. Oh, yeah. That part. The watching part is yeah. definitely the scariest. Um, so Mary believed that the writer was a fellow school bus driver named David Longberry. Mary believed that David was angry over a past rejection and had taken to writing the letters to express his frustration. So Paul eventually wrote a letter to David demanding that he cease threatening the Gillespie family. Mary and Ron had only told three people about the letters. Ron's sister, Karen, her husband, Paul, fresh hour, Sorry, I forgot to tell you who Paul was. Paul Fresh, Fresh Hour. Fresh Hour? Yeah. Fresh O U R. Fresh Hour. Oh, yeah. okay. That's a name. It's a name. I think it's better than my last name. I mean, what isn't? Yeah. <laughs> and then Paul's sister. So Mary had some ideas about who was sending the letters, therefore David. And they had decided to have Paul write letters to them. And claiming to know who they were. And the plan worked. The letters stopped for several weeks. How could they do that if there was no return address? Because she thought it was this guy, David. Oh, okay, gotcha. And it seemed to work because he wrote to David saying, stop. We know, like, what you're doing. Cease and desist, you know? Mm -hmm. So, like, imagine you're living your life. Let's say you did have an affair with this superintendent. Let's say, you know, case scenario. You're chilling with your husband and kids. You're doing your small town thing. 
some weirdo just gets up into your business and threatens your husband because he did. He said his life was in danger. Mm-hmm. And then there's the possibility she didn't even have the affair. And this guy is here. Do they take these letters to the police? We will find out. Oh, okay. Large signs soon started to appear around town claiming that Massey and Gillespie's 12-year-old daughter were involved in a sexual relationship. Oh my gosh. Too far! That escalation of the ferocious attacks terrified the family, and soon Ron was getting up extra early in the morning to drive around town and remove signs before his daughter spotted them on her way to school. And remember, Mary's a bus driver. Yeah. What's this guy's life? Like, the letter writer? What is... What's their life? How did no one stake out who was doing this? And like, at what point is the, what, what is the point of the police? What is their job? Yeah, I think I would, um, I would leave the state. <laughs> Ron's safety has been threatened. Now the safety of a child and not to mention Mary and the superintendent, but it's the seventies and the police work in the small town was, you know, yeah, it was so effective. <laughs> And nine months after the initial letter, Ron's at home. He's chilling with his kids. Okay? Uh Chilling with his kids. He received a mysterious phone call. Ron had been receiving continued letters threatening his life and informing him that his pickup truck was being watched and his movements followed. This harassment now seemed to to extend to a phone call. Ron slams the phone down, grabbed his gun, which was a small 25 caliber pistol, and storms out of the house. Again, police, questions we have to ask ourselves. Where were they in this? They didn't tap the phone. They didn't do anything to help them. Did they take it to the police? I believe so. I mean, why would you not? Well, you're seeing the signs. Yeah. And harassing a 12-year-old girl. If you're getting... That and you're getting threat threats like and death threats. Harassing a twelve year old girl. Yeah. Like at that point you don't the police should be involved regardless. Yeah. Yeah. A child shouldn't have to advocate for themselves. Yeah. You know? So Ron must have decided to confront the letter writer and have a piece of information from that call because it seems that the phone call took it all just to step over the ledge from or he knew who the voice was on the other end. We will never know. Oh, man. Ron only made it to the end of his street. No. He allegedly lost control of the truck, which slammed into a large tree, and he died in the process. Oh, man. The letters got out of hand. So did somebody mess with his truck? It is a possibility. I'm listening. Oh, yeah. But I can't say for sure. When Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe of Pickaway County examined Ron's gun, a single shot had been fired just before the accident. No evidence was found at the site, and neither the bullet nor the casing was recovered. Which means someone took it. The casing should have been in the truck. If you fire from the passenger seat, the casing should be in the, the truck. Blood test showed Ron's blood alcohol content was 1.6, twice over the legal limit. Ron wasn't known to be a big drinker, and his children didn't believe him to be drunk. Sheriff Radcliffe, who originally believed foul play was involved, changed his mind based on the, the BAC, finding and concluded Ron had died as a result of a drunk driving accident. This turn of events also displeased 
the Serpaville writer, who sent a letter after Ron's death accusing Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe of covering up the crime. Okay, so are they saying they were involved and they... I'm kind of confused now. I didn't have access to that exact letter. Okay. But Sheriff Radcliffe claimed a person of interest had been grilled about the odd nature in which Ron died, but he passed a polygraph test because those are so reliable. So Sheriff Radcliffe dismissed him as a suspect. We all know that a polygraph is junk science and is inadmissible in court. It should only be used as a tool if that. There is really no veracity with a polygraph, and an honest person can fail, and a sociopath can pass. So, yeah, sounds like he really uh, messed up there. Look, you can get me to admit that I am the Lindbergh baby with a polygraph uh-huh. test. I have anxiety. Mm. Like, you want to see? Yeah. <laughs> like, a messed up polygraph? I'll fail. I think I would fail anything. Yeah. Just because it would make me anxious. So, I would lose my mind. Did this happen at night? Did he get this phone call at yes, night? Yes, it was oh, at night. Okay. It was at night. So Ron's smash pickup truck was also disposed of in a junkyard in Ohio days after the accident, thus eliminating any opportunity to study it further. So that's also a massive yeah. oopsie daisies, considering that it was initially considered a homicide. So did we gather any evidence from it at all? local residents are starting to receive letters of their own, which revealed Mary Gillespie's alleged affair with Gordon Massey and accused Sheriff Radcliffe of orchestrating a cover-up. Massey gets divorced over all of this, and then Mary begins a relationship with him. Oh, gosh. But she also maintains that their romance did not start until after Ron's death. I did say a likely story, but then I think about it, and I'm like... I could actually see that happening because the only person who understands what she's going through. Yeah, that is true. Is him. And her husband has died. And Tragically. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I am on both sides yeah. of, eh. It just. And, eh. Yeah. You know? So February of 1983, the letter writer's attacks on Mary levels up. They had now begun to place horrible signs along the roadsides of Circleville that Mary would see on her bus route. She's had enough. She pulls her bus over by the sign and storms out of the bus and basically went to go rip it down. Just before she did, she notices something very odd. Twine hung from a crudely made box that the poster was attached to. Instead of grabbing just the sign, she removed the entire structure from the roadside and brought it back to the bus. As she pried the lid open, which, like, opened the glue seal that held it all together, she found inside two large blocks of styrofoam holding a pistol in place, the twine attached to the trigger. This poorly built booby trap was set up to fire at anyone who tore down the sign. What cracked me up is the amount of times Unsolved Mysteries says booby traps Mm -hmm. in the episode. It made it a lot less threatening. So, okay. She stopped. She was driving the bus. Yes. Stopped to deal with the sign. Did she have kids on the bus? I don't think I would have stopped and gotten off the bus if it were full of kids. Like, yeah, I don't, know the, I don't know. I can't remember from the Unsolved Mysteries, like, or they didn't specify. And I don't take their reenactments as, as truth because, you know, they're going to do it for dramatic purposes. Yeah. Um, but so Mary can't. Like, believe what she's looking at. And she would later testify that she thought the gun 
was like a starter pistol for races. So it was blanks Mm -hmm. rather than like a live firearm. So rather than immediately report it to the police, she took it home and she finally took it into the police like a few hours later. And upon investigation and recovery of like the poorly filed serial number, the police found that it belonged to Paul Freshour, Ron's now former brother-in-law. Karen was Ron's sister and cheated on Paul and resu- resulted in divorce. Paul was able to get custody of the children and retain the house. So on February 25th of 1983, Sheriff Radcliffe asked Paul to meet with him and take a handwriting test. He asked Paul to try and copy the handwriting from the letters. Sheriff Radcliffe also had him write the letters while repeating them verbally. All of this was a wide load of horse manure, and it basically staged Paul to fail. Why would he do his best to copy a letter, then copy it from memory? That's a school tactic. There's literally no scientific evidence to base that method Bradcliffe used. It's bonkers. Well, if you think that you're being told to copy this because they want to see if you look like you wrote it, you wouldn't do that. You would... Yeah. You would mess it up. On purpose. That's odd. I've never... You would just have different things that he's already written and compare it. Right. Also, what if he changed his handwriting for the letter knowing that was a possibility? So, after the test, Paul took Sheriff Radcliffe to his garage and showed him where he kept his gun. Paul said that it had been stolen a while back and only he and Karen knew where it was. Afterwards, the two returned to the courthouse. Paul's arrested and charged with attempted murder. October 24th, 18, wait, 1983, we went back in time. He goes on trial for attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. Here's the weird part. What if just anyone went to rip that sign down? It could have been anyone. One of Mary's friend, one of her kids. It could have been anyone. That's so random. It doesn't feel like, I don't know. What do you think of that? Well, not knowing, I mean, are we at the end of what we do know? Okay. So I got more. Is it a, is it a part of the equation that she had anything to do with any of this? And I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Does what's his name have an alibi for the night that her husband was? I don't think they ever asked him for it because he doesn't have to. It's not a homicide. It's an accident. Remember it got changed. Yeah. So no alibis required. Okay. Isn't that really upsetting? And you want it to be an alibi. So he does go to trial for attempted murder. So he's never charged with writing the threatening letters. He's never charged to be the Circleville writer, right? But somehow they become a crucial part of the evidence against him. A handwriting expert testifies that Paul was the letter writer, which you can get an expert to testify to anything. Mary also testifies that she believed that he was the writer after his wife um, slash her sister-in-law visited her at the same with the same suspicion. Paul's boss also testified that he was not at work on the day that the booby trap was found. Paul had an alibi for the most of the day, though. Unfortunately, he never took the stand in his defense. If he had, it would have been deemed that over a thousand letters and postcards would have become admissible to the court involving hundreds of residents. That's how many people... Thousand letters, yeah. Though maintaining his innocence, he was convicted and given a 7 to 24 year sentence for attempted murder. 
This is the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. It feels like it is a string-thin case against him. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I believe Unsolved Mysteries made it seem thicker. So while there, he himself received letters from the writer who was determined to keep him there. Others would still receive letters postmarked from Columbus, even though he was in prison in Lima. Or Lima. But I think it's Yeah, Lima. that's where Glee is, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I got a question real quick. Yes. These letters, do they all look the same on the outside? I believe so, yes. So why isn't the post office catching these? You know what I'm saying? The post office doesn't get the crap. But if they're going to that many people, I would think you would think that, that they would notice. And but like the post office deals with so much stuff. Yeah, but this isn't that big of a town. Yeah, but that know. post office probably delivers to many towns. You're not wrong. But also over the it's the span of years now. Okay. So while in prison, he's a model prisoner. But Radcliffe had him sent to solitary. Which, by the way, we're one of the few countries that do that. And according to the UN, it's considered cruel and unusual punishment. Messes with your mind. Yep. Mm -hmm. So even there, letters kept arriving while he was in prison. He even received a mysterious letter that stated, Now when are you going to believe that you aren't going to get out of there? I told you two years ago. When we set him up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? The prison warden was certain that he could not have sent any of those letters. Um, so it sounds like somebody with power is doing this. Yeah. Could he? Did he ever think of somebody that, you know, had a grudge against him? No, uh, I think that's coming up. Okay. In December 1990, Paul becomes eligible for a parole. He was denied due to the letters, even though there was no way he could have sent them. In 1994, he was finally paroled. And continues to maintain his innocence. However, the author has never been identified to this day. Wow. Yeah. So the FBI. He puts together, Paul Freshour puts together a 176-page PDF, chock full of his side of events. Plus press coverage, trial transcripts, and official documents maintaining his own innocence, the letter writing, and the booby trap. Booby trap is still so fun. That's a weird word, and I don't know. I I hate it. But they said it so much in that episode. I can't not. And I don't know what like synonym to use. Do you know the history of it? I should have looked it up. Seems like some random fact you would know. It does. It does. You know what? Maybe at the end of the episode, I'll tell you why we call it booby trap. (laughs) So it focused on several conspiracies that became a mountain of corruption by those at the top of the law enforcement within Circleville, which reminds me of when we covered the boys on the tracks in Bryan, Arkansas. And here's his letter. Dear FBI, I am asking that you get involved in my former brother-in-law's murder because I believe it was a murder and covered up by the sheriff of Pickaway County here in the state of Ohio. I was sent to prison because of a series of obscene and threatening letters that had the county in panic. I did ten and a half years, and the letters continued, undisturbed and uninterrupted, just as always. Freshover then makes a strong claim, and you can find the full letter online. I believe that the obscene, threatening letters and dangerous letters were concealed because they would interfere with Sheriff Radcliffe becoming the National Sheriff's Association's president. He wrote, See the date of the letters and the date of his involvement with the National Sheriff's Association, 
Crime rate in Pickaway County at the time would have eliminated him from the appointment. In fact, this was just the start of the corruption, according to Freshour, and he goes on to accuse the sheriff of mismanagement of funds as well as fudging crime figures for a number of years. But what I take out of it is he really legitimately wants justice for Ron, what everyone else seems to think isn't that important. So, while Unsolved Mysteries was researching the case, they received a letter of their own. Oh, gosh. Forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. The Circleville writer. Okay. No joke. Isn't that hilarious? That's, yeah. Did they take it seriously? No, they still have the episode. Okay. Yeah. So, we have some theories. Journalist Martin Yant has investigated the story and found another possible suspect that could be the writer. He also discovered that 20 minutes before Mary found the booby trap, another bus driver on Mary's route had seen a suspicious man standing next to a yellow El Camino. The man was at the same spot where the trap would later be found. Yant found that the possible suspect's brother owned the same type of car. The description does not match Paul, and he had a solid alibi at the specific time. The new batch of letters featured some horrific accusations. In one of them, the Circleville writer accused Roger Klein, who had prosecuted Fresh Hour's case, of having killed a pregnant schoolteacher. The writer threatened to dig up the victim's grave and mail the bones to the police unless Klein admitted to impregnating the woman and killing both her and her unborn child. Wow. That's a crazy, crazy accusation. Mm -hmm. So the original air date for this episode was November 11th of 1994, and Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe and Mary Gillespie declined to be interviewed for the story. And... Although not mentioned in, like, the Unsolved Mystery segment, Paul allegedly admitted to Sheriff Radcliffe that he had written between 40 and 50 of the Circleville letters, but Paul discredits this by saying if he had confessed, why didn't Radcliffe record it? It was already in practice in the 70s. Dr. Ray Carroll, the county coroner, accused of being a pedophile by the Circleville writer, was charged with 12 counts of gross immorality, sex crime, corruption with a minor, pornography, obscenity, and indecent exposure in December of 1993. Do you remember David Longberry, the one that Mary thought it was? Yes. He assaulted, forcibly assaulted an 11-year-old girl in 1999. He went on the run and, as far as I know, is still a wanted fugitive. Wow. Yeah. But nobody ever took him seriously as a suspect Mm-mm. in any of it? Not, uh, only Mary thought it was him. And Paul was the one who called him and said, stop. Mm-hmm. Which would make sense if he was the person why Paul was targeted to be framed. Yes, that is true. After being paroled, Paul created his own website to profess his innocence. He asserted that Sheriff Radcliffe had covered up the crimes as much as possible in order to become president, right? Mm-hmm of the National Sheriff's Association, Paul's fingerprints were not found on the letters gun or booby trap. A search of Paul's house did not turn up any corroborating evidence, maybe like mm, ammunition, or any material which could have been used to construct the signs and or booby trap. Mary Gillespie testified shortly after their divorce. Paul's ex-wife, Karen, confided in her that Paul believed uh, that she believed Paul might have been the author of the threatening letters that she had received years earlier. Paul's response was, if Karen really believed I had done this, why did she never mention it in divorce court? 
And why does she think that? Yeah. What did she base it on? But if she, like, if it's ever going to hold weight, it would have been in divorce court. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Did they, um, like, run fingerprints on any of the letters? Can you do that? I mean. I don't think they had any. Like, none of the letters had any fingerprints. Oh, okay. You know? Like, they must have worn a glove. And honestly, I'm surprised that there's not more people dead. Oh, yeah, same. same. Like, only one person? Only her husband? Is the only one that died? Like, you would think somebody would be killing him to cover, you know. And, like, on top of that, like, considering these accusations, they are hefty. Yeah. So, years later, it's discovered that a key piece of evidence was withheld at the trial. 20 minutes before Mary discovered the booby trap, another school bus driver driving that route reported seeing a yellow El Camino parked at that spot along with a sandy-haired man who did not match Paul's description. He did match the description of another man Karen Freshour was dating at the time. And even though Paul did not own a yellow El Camino, Karen's brother did. Shoe prints were also found at the scene, which did not match Paul's shoe size. It is suspected that there was more than one writer. So, to this day. We do not know who the circle of the letter writer is. I think it's either due to shockingly terrible police work, police or other small town cover-up, or something perhaps even more heinous. But the real question is, what's the focus with Mary? Why did Ron die? And why didn't he take note that his truck could have been tampered with? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So where is she now? I don't know. I think... I didn't want to answer that question because if she's still, like, you know, alive and all that. Yeah. It's been 50 years now. Yeah. I don't want people to, like, call her up and be like, who was it? It's beyond terrifying to think about how much your neighbors could know about you. Or, yeah. like, now that we live in the age of the internet, like, all of their sense of privacy we give away. But how we have, like, a network of security. But we don't mm-hmm. because people check in on us. Yeah, I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> Did the story live up to nosy neighbors? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, I don't know what it is, but I find it so hard to believe that we cannot figure this out. I guess I. It does feel like this should have been the most solvable case yeah, possible. It's very strange. And it isn't. It's like, we solved Son of Sam, but we didn't solve this one. But then again, Son of Sam was a very, like, oops, we accidentally did that. Um, that's my hot take. So, what service is streaming episodes of Unsolved Mysteries? Because I would like to go back and watch Okay, them. so right now you can get it on Amazon Prime. You can get it on... I, I want to watch it. Look, guys, watch Unsolved Mysteries. And Peacock has it. Hulu. Hulu has it. Okay. Amazon, Peacock. Go watch yourself classic Unsolved Mysteries. There's something about watching things from the 90s. That just makes me feel at home. I like to think that the Circleville writer went out with the Elsa goes. That's so yeah. hilarious. <laughs> Elsa goes. And this, from one Elsa go to the rest of you Elsa goes. <laughs> hear it. Hear it. Let's talk about the facts. Tweet us at Talk About Facts, T A L K A B T, F A C T S. And this has been a lovely. Lovely story of my sister-in-law just cracking up at me. Um, I'm Elizabeth Fury. This has been Jennifer Fury. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. I couldn't imagine this situation. Like, I did live in a town of 12,000 for, like, 
what, nine months? Yeah. That was the worst time of my life. I couldn't handle it. I live in a county of, what, 13, 14 million? That's insane. Settling for me. Uh -uh. No one know who I am. No. And you're more like... I do not want your traffic issues. Oh, dude, I don't don't deal with it. No. I love living in a small town inside of a big city because it's like every little district is a town. And yeah, I guess if you if you walk everywhere, I don't. It's cool, but I don't want it to take more than twenty minutes for me to get where I need to go. You've seen Clueless? Yes, I have. You know what he says? It's only it takes twenty minutes to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. That's why they're it so close. No, it doesn't take you to get somewhere specific like oh. Santa Monica. But, no, I mean, I got all my necessities around me. I mean, if it suits you. It does. You. you know, it does. Yeah. But, like, I envy the ability to pull it off. Yeah. I, even in, like, you know, when I lived in Little Rock, city of, what, 240,000? I don't even know. That was too small. I am comfortably nobody. And... Okay. A city of where I can just blend in and still find random people I've known from across the country at a ramen restaurant in Studio City. It happened <laughs> once. We went to college together. Okay. Other. Okay. Other. Okay. Other. Okay. Other. Okay.